Hello and welcome to HipCast, the podcast to improve hip fracture care. From the Australian and New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry, I'm Maureen Taylor, Research Fellow and Data Analyst, and I'll be hosting today's episode. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Australian New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Jackie Close, Registry Co-Chair and Consultant Geriatrician at Prince of Wales Hospital in New South Wales, and Dr Philip Black, Consultant Anaesthetist at Prince of Wales Hospital, to talk about the recent Australian New Zealand Hip Fracture Registry work examining preoperative fasting and opportunities for improvement, as well as implementation of SIPTL SENT. Welcome, Jackie and Phil. Okay, so we'll kick off with a question for Jackie. Can you begin by telling us why fasting was an important area of focus for the Hip Fracture Registry? It's really been um, an extension of the work and the interest we've had in, in nutrition. When we have our hip festivals every year and we're asking people about opportunities to improve care, nutrition and fasting are the two things that have consistently um, come up. And we've already looked at nutrition in the hip fracture population in hospital with one of our sprint audits. We know that 30% of hip fracture patients are malnourished many more are at risk of becoming uh, malnourished and we know that only 10 percent ever receive oral nutritional supplementation in hospital and the fasting aspect of it is really just an extension of our desire to to maintain good nutritional status while in hospital and, and we know that prolonged fasting is bad for patients so so that's what's driving us from a hip fracture registry perspective and Phil, can you tell us what the current guidelines in Australia and New Zealand recommend in relation to fasting? Well, back in 1883, Joseph Lister suggested that uh, patients can have clear fluids up until two hours before surgery. Um, we haven't really changed that much. The current guidelines say two hours for clear fluids and no food or milk for six hours beforehand. So we've been dealing with much the same fasting guidelines for about 140 years. Um, of course, in the 1970s, a big push came towards the phrase fast from midnight or nil by mouth from midnight. And that's become very, very popular over the last few decades and is quite a difficult fasting guideline to shift, even though that's not technically the anaesthetic uh, guidelines. Okay. And can you talk about and um, tell us some of the practical challenges that there are to sticking to the uh, timeframes and guidelines? Well, the the two main ones are, one, we never quite know when surgery is going to happen. There's so many factors, uh, you know, how long is the last case taking, how long is it going to take to get up there, but we just are terrible at predicting when an individual case will start in the operating theatres. Uh, and secondly, the other factor is um, essentially nurses being told off for giving a patient a drink. Um, they don't get congratulated or thanked for giving patients nutrition or fluids, uh, but they do get yelled at, they do get told off. They've all got stories of being heavily criticised for delaying surgery. And that is a individual fear um, that is quite reasonable, being told off by a senior surgeon or an anaesthetist, and people don't want that in their day-to-day -day work. So the easy option is to not give the patient anything to drink, and then you don't get in trouble. So the registry has been doing sprint audits for a number of years now. For the listeners who aren't familiar with sprint audits, they involve additional questions that are added to the routine registry data collection for a one-month period. Hospitals contributing patient-level data to the registry can opt in to participate. Jackie, what did the preoperative fasting sprint audit look at and what were the key findings? 
So this year's focus was indeed the fasting um, audit. We produced a number of other sprint audits, nutrition, secondary fracture prevention and early mobilisation. But this year, um, 39 facilities across Australia and New Zealand participated in the fasting audit. Um, 33 of those sites also collected patient level data for us. Perhaps not surprisingly, the majority of hospitals have some sort of business rule in place. Uh, a number of hospitals have or are planning to try and improve their fasting times. Uh, and most of them are aware at the moment of the Siptal Send um, initiative. At a patient level, what we were able to demonstrate was nearly a third of patients are fasted two or more times in advance of hip fracture surgery. So that's not good. When you look at this, uh, the way that fasting instructions are written, the vast majority of people um, are given fasting from a specified time. So 82% are fasted from a specified time. And the vast majority of those are fast from midnight, which is, of course, what Phil is suggesting um, and is more is longer than is necessary. When it comes to liquids, 62% um, are faster from a specific time. And again, the majority of those are either midnight or two o'clock in the morning. About 20% didn't have any instructions that were specific um, to fluids. And, and I guess the key figures from this audit are the solid fasting time. So we looked at the median um, solid fasting time, and that was 12 hours, despite the recommendations being uh, six hours. And when you look at fluid fasting, it, the median fasting time was 10 hours, despite existing guidelines that tell us it is fine to have clear fluids up until two hours prior to the procedure. So the bottom line from the sprint audit tells us that the, the current guidelines are not delivering on the intent, which is to minimise fasting and that we need to do something different. Okay, so Jackie, you together with Phil and the clinical teams at Prince of Wales have been involved in implementing a program to reduce fluid fasting. For those unfamiliar with Siptal Send, what is it? So Siptal Send originates from Scotland um, and has been a mechanism for trying to deal with those challenges that I've just outlined in terms of prolonged fasting times and, and, and the difficulty in knowing whether somebody's going to have surgery. And really what it is, is that it enables people to continue drinking clear fluids, one cup of clear fluid per hour, up until the point that they are called to theatres. It really is that simple. And it's been rolled out across a number of hospitals in the UK. I think the latest figures are 170 hospitals are now implementing um, Siptal Send in the UK, and it's gaining increasing interest um, in Australia and New Zealand. And Phil, can you tell us a little bit about how Siptal Send was implemented at Prince of Wales Hospital? So we started off with a, well, we've had audits in the past, which have shown very similar to other international studies and very similar to the sprint audit, very long median fasting times. And that's the median. You look at the extremes and they're just horrifying how long some people have to fast for clear fluids. Uh, so we presented that survey. We also surveyed, presented some evidence to our department, our anaesthetic department, and surveyed them to see how they felt about changing the guidelines. Fortunately, Prince of Wales, we're a very mixed hospital. We are co-located with a paediatric hospital. And our paediatric hospitals was possibly the first in the world to commence 
zero hours fasting, as it was known back in 2010. So we had this strange dichotomy where children up until the age of 18 were allowed to drink until being sent for theatre. Um, but the moment they were over 18, they had to fast for these inordinate amounts of time. And that's often been the picture around the world as well, that there's been a bigger push towards uh, having children not fast. And I think that's simply because they've got parents advocating for them. Um, we then spent a lot of time writing the policy. And I really have to thank all the different departments and people in the hospital that I never knew would be that interested uh, or that willing to provide the amount of time and effort, uh, you know, physiotherapists, the dieticians, uh, the surgeons, emergency departments, all the different departments, everybody had a say, and they're all very, very helpful and useful um, in getting this through. And then it was a very large education campaign with posters, T-shirts, badges, uh, biscuits, theatre caps, whatever we could think of um, to get the message across, and it was, it was very, very well re received. So, um, you know, by bit by bit, we managed to break down the um, barriers and actually um, get it through. Okay, and I'll start with you, Phil. Have you identified any issues or concerns since the program started? Uh, one of the anecdotal concerns is that there are more wet beds in theatre. Um, as patients are anaesthetised, their underlying incontinence shows. Um, I find that reassuring that they actually have some renal function. Uh, however, it is creating a little bit of extra work for the in-theatre nursing staff. Um, and it has to be noted so that any patients don't have their operation done with wet sheets around them and the risk of pressure sores. Um, and the other issue, of course, is the frequent turnover of, uh, of our staff, our junior doctors, our junior nursing staff, and the need for ongoing education. One big bash of education isn't enough. And Jackie, from your point of view, any issues and concerns? I think it's, it's important to remember it's still early days. For us, we started Siptal Send on the 4th of July this year. All the indicators suggest that it's been successful. The nursing staff in particular, it's, it's made life an awful lot easier um, for them. Hopefully from a patient perspective, um, there aren't people with prolong who are being fasted for prolonged periods. Phil's point about the need for ongoing education is important. And a lot of patients who arrive in the surgical setting come from other wards other than surgical wards. Um, so I think there does need to be an ongoing process for education. Um, and that's something we probably hadn't factored in sufficiently at this point in time. Um, but it, but it's, it's something that's easy enough to, to do going forward. And in, in terms of being able to monitor safety, I, I think that is important. I know there will be people concerned about or may even consider our approach radical. It is important to continue monitoring for any documented adverse events that might be associated with the introduction of CIPTOLSEND. So, of course, the ANSCO WebAIRS um, domain is a, is a very good way of us being able to track whether we're starting to see any increased incidence of aspiration. It's such a rare event, though, that it would be multiple years for one hospital to be able to identify any change in practice. Um, but on, on the whole, it's been successful. The staff are happy. The patients seem to be happy. And we, we don't appear to have any 
significant adverse events at this point in time. But we, we all fully acknowledge we need to keep monitoring this and any hospital taking this on board also needs to think about that. And if we move on to thinking about other hospitals that might want to implement SIPTOR-SEND, Phil, what advice would you give them? Where can they start and um, how should they go about it? The first thing first is to is to do an audit if they haven't done one already and uh, and to present the data because a lot of hospitals feel, look, we can achieve the two-hour goal, but it's only by audit or that they feel that they actually are achieving that two-hour goal, but uh, they really need to do an audit and and have a look at your own numbers and by and large, every hospital audit that I've seen is very, very similar with to uh, our recent um, hip, uh, sprint audit, audit and lots of other international ones, paediatric, adult, different nationalities, different cultures. These are worldwide problems, and it's very hard to imagine one hospital being able to solve it. Even there's audits from private hospitals that show the exact same problem for private elective patients, let alone emergency hip fractures. So it's a, it's a well-known problem. Audit, and then you've got the data. Then I think it takes, it's a matter of basically one-on-one -on -one conversations with, let's say, individual anaesthetists who are likely or have expressed opposition to the change um, and to talk them through those and see where their objections are. Quite often, it's a medico-legal objection. People are very reluctant to go against the current ANSCA guidelines for fear of being sued. And that's a difficult one because uh, I'm no lawyer, so I can't provide expert legal advice, but I do ask them to talk to their TMF in New South Wales, if it is, or their own private medical indemnity organisation about it. The feeling I get that if you have hospital policy and you are following your hospital's policy, they will cover you. They cannot guarantee that you will win that legal case if you are sued. That will come down to the judge and the expert witnesses. Um, and there's a difference as to whether you are covered or as to whether you will win. So it's important to figure out what an individual's reluctance is there on that medico-legal issue. So once the that has been done, the audit, and you've identified a few of those key individuals who might object, then it's a presentation to the anaesthetic department and to see if you can get some degree of consensus around 80 to 90% consensus amongst your anaesthetic department. Once you have that, everything else will follow. The surgeons are very happy to follow. The nursing staff are ecstatic to make this change, to be able to give patients uh, caffeine and clear fluids. Uh, the patients love it. The dietitians love it. I found even our porters love it because they were sick of patients whinging to them that they were so thirsty and hadn't been allowed to drink. So it's amazing that groups of the hospital that are, are so happy to have it. But once the anaesthetists are, are on board, um, it all flows flows very, very easily. And another important group that I found very useful were the gastroenterologists and the colorectal surgeons who are frequently doing gastroscopes. And they're able to tell us, no need for physiology experiments or data or anything like that. They're able to tell us the stomach isn't empty anyway. There's always acid down there. What are you anaesthetists worried about? There's always stuff down there. So they were also a very useful group to have on board. Right, and Jackie? Oh, a couple of things. Firstly, uh, fasting is absolutely the domain of the anaesthetist. And if you're going to take on board um, and try and run with septal send, you need to fill black in your hospital who is passionate about wanting to reduce the fasting time. I guess the medical legal thing is always, always a challenge. Uh, I would encourage people to read a paper um, in an anesthesia and intensive care that was published a few years ago 
looking at aspiration events. This is ANSCA data from their WebEs um, portal, looking at uh, the first 4,000 incidents reported in WebEs. And when they do report the incidence of aspiration, only a tiny fraction of those who aspirated were thought to have aspirated directly as a result of a wrong approach to fasting. And as Phil says, the gastroenterologist will tell you, you it's, it's very difficult to predict who's going to have what content um, in their stomach. And it does not seem to relate to the number of minutes prior to a procedure. So very definitely a friendly anaesthetist who's got the skill set to be able to bring a department um, along with them and a hospital on the journey. And that's exactly where we are. We're, we're on our journey. Okay, great. So for those of you who would like more information on resources available, we'll include relevant links in the episode notes. Uh, some of the things we'll include is the link to the ANZ HFR website sprint audit uh, infographic, Matthew Checkett's podcast link, and we're hoping to have some of the Prince of Wales resources available uh, for you to link to as well. So thank you both for joining us today and sharing your knowledge and experiences. Uh, we appreciate your time. <music>